Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. I'm Adam and welcome to Obscurios, the Retrotube spin-off show in which a guest and I look at some of the darker and stranger corners of archived television. If Retrotube is going live, then Obscurios is definitely the 815 from Manchester. Today my guest is visual artist, performance artist and musician Gisela Piggott. Gisela, is there anything you've been up to that you'd like to tell us about? Hi Adam, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. I've managed to squeeze in a bit of uh, knitting, although it's taken me about six months to make one sock, but it's the best darn sock you've ever seen. So <laughs> I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, so I've been doing that and uh, some. I'm quite into collage at the moment, so I'm making a lot of interesting bodies melting. They look, they look a bit like ice creams is all I can say. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing some of that. <laughs> so we looked at Granada Television's adaptation of the Alan Garner young adult novel The Owl Service, which was broadcast at the end of 1969 going into the beginning of 1970. We watched the first three episodes because, frankly, eight half hours of impenetrable television drama is quite a lot to spring onto someone at short notice. Gisela, based on what you saw, can you describe the premise and story of The Owl Service? It's kind of It seems to be based on what I can gather, a kind of folkloric tale of which the the characters in the actual um, TV show become a, a reenaction a reenaction of the of the story itself. So over time, we sort of gradually see these characters changing through various and being triggered by various objects or scenes or places within the within the TV show. It's sort of set in Wales, so it's very kind of earthy and. Um, there's lots of kind of nature and animals sort of depicted throughout the the show alongside this kind of um, strange sort of ethereal presence of something we're not quite sure about. Um, and that sort of grows within the story itself over the course of the three episodes that I've seen so far. It's very odd, isn't it? Mm, yeah. So what, what, did you, what did you make of it generally? <laughs> For me, I just, I started instantly reading into it in terms of its symbology you know the setting the cult like the, the clothes you know the for instance Alison she's always wearing red so that felt very sort of evocative for me yeah it was it was really it, it made me want to research these things to look look further you know to question which is which is quite rare really for a tv show you know most tv shows you tend to just kind of sit back and it's all sort of drip fed to you but mm. in this show it's more like it it wants you to ask questions, you know, to sort of maybe think about what you've just seen, which I find really is really good, actually, you know. Yeah, particularly for that. a children's drama as well. Like there's so much symbolism and so much thought has got has clearly gone into every single shot and every single thing that's on screen and in the frame. The director has clearly really, really thought about this, which, yeah, for a children's show. Yeah. They're normally a bit more slapdash. Yeah, yeah, this totally. Is, this is like a movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's it. I I felt like, you know, if if you were to put all these together as one piece, it could easily be be a film. You know, there was a, and the, just the quality itself, even though it, it seems in places like it could be fairly sort of low budget. Maybe the acting's not you know fully up to scratch. I mm. feel like it, just because also I think just because of the time that it was set in as well, it just gives it that nice kind of it, it's it works you know on, on many levels and I think yeah I, I would definitely be watching it as a as a film in and of itself yeah I think so it could be it could be trimmed down to I say trimmed down you could it could actually make it like a four-hour yeah <laughs> art movie just complete as it stands it's yeah because it's quite uh, it's eight episodes which is quite a long because they're normally six or four these sorts of dramas and um i think this is probably actually looking at it the first of what turned out to be a 20-year cycle of these folk horror 
TV shows for children. A lot of them are on the BBC, but this is an ITV one. This is Granada. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as I know, they went right through to Tom's Midnight Garden, which was 1989, so a full 20 years after this. Wow. And that wasn't quite so much folk horror, but it has that sort of mythic, magical realist, often time-bending time loops, often similar themes of revolving around nature and folklore, but also time and things recurring down the generations. You see that a lot in these sorts of shows, and this seems to be one of the very first ones that have done that. This seems to be also the most extreme in, t- in terms of many of its themes. They they get a little tamer as time goes on and mm. until Tom's Midnight Garden is fully a children's show, whereas, as, we, as we'll discover as we go through it, this isn't this isn't what you would normally think of as being a children's programme. There's a lot of stuff in here that you wouldn't, particularly these days, associate with something that you would show to youngsters. No, not so much. Um, it's quite full on. Also, the, the characters themselves, I mean, they sort of, particularly Alison, I, I find her quite intriguing because she's basically playing the role of, of a someone who who seems to be quite, a naive, you know, this idea of a, a little girl, you know, mm. very sort of, oh, you know, I'm I'm shy and I'm a bit scared and I don't know. And and actually she's like, she must be in like her 20s or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is something that I've talked about on the podcast before is teenager acting. Yeah. Talked about in the Doctor Who episode that, that an actor in their mid-20s is playing someone who's 17. I think the character's supposed to be about 17 or 18. And Gillian yeah. uh, Hills was 25 at the time. So she's she's doing that slightly exaggerated acting that a lot of grown-up actors do when they're playing teenagers of just sort of being <laughs> a lot a lot broader. So I think that's yeah. playing into it, but it does add to that sort of unsettling nature that somebody who's clearly a fully, a fully grown-up adult is acting in this really childlike way. Yeah, and also it can be misread. You know, she's she's trying to play a younger person, but in certain contexts, particularly with her father or stepfather, mm. um, Clive, it feels a little bit kind of like a role play, like it could be misinterpreted, you know, as like, oh, you know... <laughs> Yes, Daddy. You know, it, it just feels... Yes. I, I just felt myself getting a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a misinterpretation. I don't know. I, I couldn't quite tell if that was actually deliberate and whether there is a, a, a sort of free song going on there. Yeah. That it's, that's definitely not in the text. It's definitely subtext. Yes. Yeah, subtext. Yeah. But whether the director and actors are are actually playing on that and doing doing it deliberately because, like, yeah, like you say, Alison's relationship with her stepdad... Is it's edgy, let's say. <laughs> Definitely. Would you say that Alison was the the central character? Or is there a central character? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I think she's certainly one of the most symbolic of characters. Well, mm. I mean I know I know there's Hugh Halfbacon, which he seems like quite bard like. He's like a storyteller. He's he's got all this sort of knowledge about the land and its stories and people, you know, people who know him sort of don't really interact with him like Nancy she doesn't want Gwyn to to t- be talking to him you know because he, he he'll learn of these stories and you know she's very much afraid of that but yeah I feel like it does seem to she's quite a like a catalyst for the for mm. the story not necessarily like a the main character but every scene that she's in you know there's usually she's rebelling or, or she's changed somehow or you know something's a bit different about her in various scenes and whereas the other characters, they pretty much seem pretty consistent throughout the, the show. She's, you know, Alison is a little bit more conflicted in many ways. Yeah, she she seems to have the most going on, but she's not the... I don't think she's the audience identification character because she is no. quite impenetrable at times and she does... And I think probably Gwyn, who is the, um, for people that aren't familiar with it, the setup is that it's a, a couple have just been married and I think she is a widow and he is a divorcee, or maybe it's the other way around. And they've both yeah. got teenage children. So Roger is his son yeah. and Alison is Margaret's daughter. So you have these step-siblings who have sort of moved in together who are, who are about the same age. And then we have Gwyn, who is the housekeeper's son, who is also about the same age. So you get this trio of teenagers from quite different backgrounds who are thrown in together and it's just this broiling cauldron of sexual tension and resentment kind of all battling each other and (laughs) all these strange internal politics going on between these these three people that sort of manifest as a reflection of this 
mythic murder that was supposed to have happened hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I think even in the first scene, Gwyn's already using the what appears to be like a spear to open the uh, attic. Um, he's sort of jabbing at the ceiling. I was like, oh, what is that? Like a, a oh, pizza, that's right. pizza shovel or something? But it, it was the story is awakening you know in the in the house and in the characters and yeah yeah i hadn't uh, i hadn't noticed that that's i think this is a testament to how dense and detailed this show actually is that i hadn't picked up on the fact that one of the first things you, you see that he goes into the he goes into the attic armed with this spear i think it is actually i think it's an african spear oh, okay Mm. Um, from what I could tell, there's two of them sort of next to, I think they were next to the window, possibly. Yeah. Because one of the things that I noted down is that it's very, the house is decorated in a very Victorian way. It's full of stuffed animals mm. and artefacts. So you have these African spears and I think there's masks on the walls. So it's a, I think a lot of it, a lot of the subtext is about colonialism, mm. either colonialism of, the, of other countries or colonialism of nature. Oh, wow. So you have all these like foxes and owls. <laughs> Poor dead animals stuck to the walls and that kind of thing. So it's just this kind of white middle class entitlement which carries it down through to what was the father's name? Roger's dad. I've, I've uh, Clive. His... Clive, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So Clive has come in and he's he's very much of that kind of pipe smoking middle class yeah. <laughs> entitled who, who bosses around the locals who are helping him out and all that kind of thing. So I think there is that that subtext going on of of, of that kind of thing. Uh, do you ever read any um, Alan Garner? before watching this i think when i was little either myself or my mum used to read some of his books to me so the weird stone of brisingerman ah yes that's pretty much the only one i'm familiar with and i've seen the film as well which i think has a different name it's called the purple they're like dressed in purple oh really yeah i have to find out the actual name <laughs> um but yeah it's so so i'm familiar with him also i share Oh, I previously shared a surname with him as well. I was also called Garner, so... Oh, really? Oh, okay. I would often get asked, are you are you related to Alan Garner? Like, uh, no, no, I'm not. Not that you know of. You might be distantly... <laughs> <Not> that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he would probably... He'd probably say yes, that we are related and there'd be some sort of ancient folkloric tale about <laughs> yeah, that, you know? <laughs> yeah. The one that I'm most familiar with is Elidor. I think I read that a couple of times at school. Elidor. Which was about... I think it's about a unicorn that comes through from another dimension. What I love about his his books is that they're not high fantasy, they're kind of a magical realism, so it's it's mainly our world with this little bit of fantasy intruding in, mm. which makes it that a bit more evocative. But I remember the Owl Service doing the rounds at school, mm-hmm. but I never read it, and rather ridiculously, it's because I had in my head an idea of what it would be like, which was nothing like what it's actually like, because it's called the Owl Service, so I, I imagined it being something like Kiki's Delivery Service, so it's like this oh, yeah. key book about owls, and they're doing things for people in it so i imagine it's, it was literally a service <laughs> you know the owls have got this this thing they're delivering to people yeah um but of course it's it's a reference to uh that old-fashioned term for a dinner service like it's it's a, a service of plates and they appear oh. to have an owl pattern on them and this I is a big see. kind of thing that runs through it yeah oh that's nice i like it because i i would have thought the owl service sounded to me like a sort of public information program or something <laughs> yeah, for you know? owls like the, like the world service but for yeah. owls <laughs> you tune your radio and it's just <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, just a little bit of background for anyone who hasn't seen it. it the basis behind the story is that Gwyn and Alison find in the attic a stack of old dinner plates that have a pattern on which some of the parts of the pattern look like owls and then Alison becomes obsessed by this pattern and she starts making paper owls based on this pattern on the plates but they're sort of 3D and she sort of builds these into paper owls and she just becomes consumed by this and she she feels like she just has this empty hole in the middle of her unless she's making these owls and she becomes just consumed by the whole thing. I'm quite interested in sort of paganism and folklore so this this was really right up my street. Well this this is why I picked this one for you. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it would appeal. Yeah as I was piecing it together I thought okay I can see why why Adam has you know asked me to watch this one because yeah there's a lot here for me so yeah it's really good i think the opening titles really set up the mood don't they because it's not it's not just a theme tune like you get on most things it's it's harp music but it's periodically interrupted by these really horrible harsh sounds i think it's a motorbike revving yeah and then some kind of watery sound as well (laughs) 
It's really, um, it feel, it's almost as if it's trying to create like a portal, you know, so, you, so you're sort of entranced, you know, in the first few moments that, mm. you know, you're lulled in by these lovely sort of harps, which sound a little bit like Joanna Newsom sort of fairy music. And then you're kind of, you're, you're sort of sucked into this hole and you, you're like trapped in there and there's nothing but a candle, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of like, <laughs> I can't get out. What's, what's happening? I, li- I like that it, it sort of bewilders you from the outset. So it's just a yeah. sequence of disconnected images. So it opens on a spinny of trees on the hill and then there's a circle around it, which is kind of pulsating mm. and then just randomly a candle. Yeah. And then a shadow puppet of somebody doing birds with their hands and then forming a circle again and then it shows you the pattern from the plate and a big deafening tearing sound as this is torn it's really like they've made the sound effects in the opening titles really unpleasant yeah <laughs> so it all works to, to completely un- unsettle you by the time it starts there's no uh we we talked about I, I talked with alex last time about interference when it's this really cheerful reggae music and it puts you on completely the wrong foot for what's about to happen mm. but this doesn't this sets you up for <laughs> for something properly unsettling and quite scary at times yeah and i guess uh, as you mentioned it's described as a folk horror which i actually didn't realize was a genre for tv shows back in mm. the 70s like i don't know if we even have a genre like that now in in sort of modern tv series i suppose probably not on tv no i think it's more of a film thing now yeah yeah it's, it's, yeah exactly so it's like you know, all perhaps all the filmmakers who were influenced by those kind of TV series, even musicians. I mean, you know, you were talking about um, the hand, you know, the hands making the birds in the opening sequence. And actually, that's an album cover for a very interesting um, band called The Advisory Circle. Right. Well, there's The Advisory Circle and then there's Belbury Polly. And they're all on the same record label uh, called Ghost Box. And generally, the the albums under that label, they they all kind of use these old sound effects and bits and like snippets of vocals from old tv shows and it it feels for me like they're trying to capture you know something about that time that eeriness but in a kind of musical contemporary sense so yeah that was really really interesting to see that actually yeah i think it's called hauntology i think isn't it where it's trying to capture that sort of and yeah i think it is a lot of explicitly sort of nostalgia for this era and genre of tv Mm. and probably a lot of them specifically the owl service adaptation as well because it it is sort of quite a well-known one amongst it in those circles record labels like ghost box are really making a whole art movement out of this this sort of thing and yeah the 70s was was definitely the period for the folk horror tv shows one i think you'd like which we did in the previous episode was uh, children of the stones which is about standing stones and a similar sort of eerie unsettling vibe i think that's the one i may have seen a bit of and that's based on another book i think what makes this one stand out partly as well is it's entirely shot on film so a lot of uh, a lot of the later ones uh, including children of the stones the interiors would all be on video and the exteriors would be on film which has its own aesthetic mm. anyway a lot of people enjoy that sort of aesthetic of it's, it's quite a nostalgic thing you don't get it anymore of course because technology is quite different but for the film unit would shoot the outdoor stuff and then you'd go into the studio to shoot the indoor stuff but this whole thing is shot on location mm. so the interiors are all actually in the interior of the house or i think there's a couple of different locations standing for the interiors um so it, it does that gives it that feature film feel as well and it's beautifully filmed isn't it some of the framing and the the shots they've they've not just plonked the camera down they've really thought about it i think there's two i have in mind there so i think in particular the opening scene first episode uh we see alison she's uh, well we see a beam of light on the ceiling kind of the, the candle is the last kind of bit of the opening section that we see and then it cuts to this uh light on the ceiling a sort of beam of light and we, we then see Alison sort of lying in her bed and she seems very small. Everything seems quite large around her and she's in her red big nightgown and she's looking up at the ceiling and pointing at this beam of light. And um, I just found that shot really, you know, that, that to me just, it said Alice in Wonderland, Red Riding Hood. You know, we had, yeah, just, just so many kind of fairy tale like stories just instantly came to my mind from that one shot yes and secondly i think the scene where i think in episode two where it gets very sort of 
dreamlike. It almost goes into a kind of Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. kind of mists of Avalon sort of scene where where we see Alison. She's kind of become she's she's not really Alison. She's like a, another person. She seems more adult in her behaviour. You know, she says to Gwyn, "Don't you talk to me like that." Whereas in other scenes, she's very oh, I'm sorry, oh, I don't know, oh, I'm scared, you know, yes. that, that sort her of... her accent changes a bit, doesn't it? She becomes a lot more, a lot posher and... She's yeah. quite posh anyway, but she does, yeah. becomes a lot harder and brittler. Yeah, we see her power, she demonstrates her power through, you know, she makes his, the pages of the book fly into the air, you know, and I think in particular we see her sunglasses and then the camera kind of, you can just see the two boys reflected, one in each eye yeah. in the red sunglasses, that, oh, they're black, I can't remember... Yeah, but they just stood right there. It's such a great shot. And there's another one earlier on where it's in her room and the the camera's on Gwyn, but you can see her reflect, or maybe it's the other way around, but you can see one of them reflected in the mirror in the background. Yes. And it's, there's so much thought put into that. And there's another bit I, I really liked. I think that was in the second episode as well. It was maybe the first episode where Gwyn is with his mum, who is like <laughs> his horrible mother, Nancy, the housekeeper. Yeah. And she's making bread in a bowl and she's kneading the dough and he's washing lettuce and putting it into a colander and it cuts between the bowl and the colander Mm. expertly like it it matches the two and there's there's obviously some significance to this and i think sort of it really works as a surrealist film because it's it's obsessing over some of these details but not really revealing why it's obsessing over some of these details initially i thought it was quite funny Mm. that's kind of like is she kneading lettuce and making it into bread the way it's cutting from lettuce to bread and (laughs) it's very sort of tense dialogue and he's flicking slugs off the lettuce and she's kind of warning him you know through her her actions her mundane kind of you know the housekeeper sort of actions yes really interesting into interplay of images and sound yeah and some weird dialogue as well i like the sort of non sequitur dialogue Mm. Uh, one i wrote down was he's uh, towards the beginning Gwyn says to alison ah come on girlie show us your hands and then they're distracted by something else but unless there's something i'm missing you never find out why he wanted to see her hands what he's (laughs) what he's looking for so yeah and it it just it's quite dreamlike in a way isn't it very much and i think even just from that bit i think the moment he picks up the plate in the first episode in the attic where it's got the the owls sort of printed all over it and it kind of he has this kind of a connection opens he can see something and it's like suddenly the portal has been opened the story is awake he's awake and so it starts to unravel you know there's yeah, really interesting kind of um, points of reference there that, again, we're not quite sure what's going on, but it's slowly unravelling. Isn't it? Yeah. It actually reminded me, just, just to sound pretentious for a moment, it reminded me of Sean Andalou, the um, oh, yes. Salvador Dali, Lewis, Lewis Bunuel film. It had that kind of vibe. And I think particularly mm. The Hole in the Stone reminded me with of like that film's sort of obsession with holes, particularly like The Hole in the Hand with the ants coming out. And oh, yeah. There's lots of very short scenes and very just sort of cutaways to things happening which reminded me of that kind of thing so it's not as simple as you've a tv drama you'd get establishing shot and then you get a scene and then you go to the next scene yeah there would be like we'll just see what roger's doing outside for two seconds and then we'll go and see hugh halfbacon raking the gravel for two seconds and then we finally rest upon the the actual scene we're going to join and watch that play out, but it doesn't have those establishing shots. It just checks in on everyone else and or just gives you close-ups of various random or apparently or possibly random objects or really carefully thought-out objects, possibly. We, we never really find out. Yeah, it's like they all contain secrets, you know, even mm. the bit where I think there's a bit in episode three where they've just uncovered the mystical sort of painting under the woodwork and it's crumbled away and there's this kind of like... Botticelli looking kind of Venus underneath and she's got these big sort of amber eyes glaring out at them and she has huge eyes yeah she does she has quite quite large eyes yes. <laughs> and yeah I think there's like a bit where Gwyn comes in with some coffee tea and coffee and there's like a, a dinner there's like some coffee cups but I don't know if this is like deliberate but Roger's shirt that he's wearing has like blue roses all over it and he's got like a purple kind of a flock tie on as well kind of like Mm. matches the tea set you know he's like he's he's quite an elusive sort of character he's quite interesting he's got very much the the, you know the element of like a trickster or 
you know he's a bit playful as a, as a character which I quite liked so yeah just, just things like that the shot of the tea service and then Roger's shirt and then like oh, I, I really wanted his shirts I was having shirt envy they were right <laughs> up my street it's his floral 1960s shirts oh my god I yeah as soon as I saw them I was like Adam needs to get one of these shirts it's amazing yeah. but I think that the, the, particularly the teenagers the three teenagers they're very specifically colour coded, so yeah. Alison is always wearing this really bright blood red, uh, and like you say, a sort of red riding hood kind of thing, or very sort of sensual red. Roger is always wearing green, and he's not because he's a bit of a city boy. He's not the kind of character you would associate. You would think that Gwyn, who's like the the local Welsh country boy, he'd be the one wearing green. Yeah, but it's actually Roger is either always wearing green or he's always wearing floral shirts covered in nature. And this is part of this myth is that there's a a woman made of flowers but when you see Roger in his shirts he looks like he's made of flowers mm, yeah and then Gwyn is always wearing either black or dark blue I don't know if it's it's possibly the filming makes it look black sometimes but it's he always just wears this very dark color but I don't know if you noticed the bit in the billiard room which I thought was interesting because the billiard table has green and red balls the three teenagers are having a conversation and Roger dressed in green is holding a green ball and just sort of mm. playing with it and at the same time Alison wearing entire Highly red is holding the red ball and playing with it so yeah so just all these little details have just been really thought out and it's like it's like they're becoming like pawns in a game or something you know yeah like, because it's about them kind of becoming these this story you know it's like you know monopoly or chess or something they're holding their pieces you know here yes. i am this is me i'm the red i'm the green when's it your turn to do the next oh, bit. Way, yeah, like little meeples, little counters on a, yeah. on a board game. Yeah, I also coming back to that um, billiards room is also really interesting. Mm. Just in terms of like all of the, like you say, the stuffed animals and, you know, the style of the room itself, just the decor, very dark wood. And definitely for me felt like it was referencing. It's a film also made in the 1970s called Black Moon. Oh, I've seen Black Moon, not for a long time, but yes. Yeah. It did have that vibe, didn't it? Very much. Yeah, because it's all, the house is quite strange and it's like a dream and it's, you know, there's a young girl in there and yeah. That's right. I I think it was actually reminding me of that, but I, I hadn't quite coalesced it into identifying the thought. But yeah, now you mention it definitely has black moon vibes uh, so a couple of the actors in this are quite, would would have been quite recognizable at the time the dad clive is played by edwin richfield who was a character actor and doctor who fans would know him as i think captain hart off the top of my head he was in the sea devils but possibly more interestingly we have gillian hills playing allison did you ever see uh, there's an antonioni film called blow up ah, in the 60s i know of it I haven't seen it. Right. So there's that notorious scene, the photo- the photography scene where uh, David Hemmings is taking photographs of two scantily clad models and the shenanigans. Uh, it's been a while since I watched it. It's not necessarily, it's not just me being coy, but I haven't watched it in a while, so I can't remember exactly what shenanigans <laughs> are going on. But it's quite a famous scene. One of them is Jane Birkin, who is Charlotte Gainsbourg's mother and Serge Gainsbourg's partner at the time and they did the song Je t'aime moi non plus you know the song with the Hammond organ and the muttering that's the one yes (laughs) and and the other one is uh is our Gillian here so that's that is also interesting casting for a children's drama she's definitely coming with baggage she's not like she's not coming in as an innocent bookish girl she's she's definitely coming in with with the baggage of roles she's previously played and she's she's there to to smolder in her red yes quite consistently we also have uh, dorothy edwards who played <laughs> played gwyn's winky-eyed horrible mother and she's <laughs> yeah. quite she's almost funny she's so over the top in a good way but yeah she's so evil she her, her, one of her eyes screws up which is brilliant hey i think your mother's calling you what do you want ma'am fetch me two letters from the kitchen garden and be sharp i'm busy you are not. She's like, really, sort of, do as you're told. <laughs> and she has this wonderful old lady voice, but she's only 52 in this. She seems like she's 18. She has this really scratchy old lady voice that she does. And it's, yeah, it's a really kind of, she's she's like this demon that prowls the house. Yes, that's so interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and like the bit where she, you know, she comes up the stairs because she hears about them going in the attic and she's furious and like the music kicks in and it's kind of like military drums you know (laughs) the the sort she marches upstairs and we see her like 
her, her stockings, you know, they're all wrinkled at the bottom and she's got slippers mm. on, you know. She's just like... Now, Miss Allison, what's this about plates? Plates, Nancy? You know what I mean, Miss Allison, if you please. What plates, They're plates in the loft. Oh, what about them? Where are they? There's only one of them, ma'am. Queen. So fierce, yet she's, it's within the sort of domestic kind of sphere quite a terrifying sort of combination yes you have the three the three parents kind of as the mirror to the three teenagers uh so you have clive who is this very paternal he's extremely paternal mm. and he's a slightly comic character as well a little bit he has a he he calls jillian not jillian he calls allison who's this you know extremely sort of glamorous sexual character he calls her old stick oh there you are old stick Oh, yeah, I wrote that down. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, actually, Clive's relationship with Alison because there is a healthy amount of, uh, like, 1970s sexism going on in that show. Oh, yes. You know, I think at one point Gwen's like, you know, he says, oh, woman, you know, and and he's like, oh, good girl, Alison, you, you go, that's a good girl. You know, it's all this kind of, like, just just be quiet. Yes, it, they they spend a lot of time just really concerned about what Alison's doing. Yeah, constant. They always just want to check up on what Alison's doing and that she just can't get some peace just to do some crafting on her own. <laughs> like, And it's quite, it's actually, that scene I think is in episode three. It's quite an alarming scene where Gwyn forcibly breaks into her shed. Yeah, oh like, my really gosh. really violently and, and assaults her just because he wants to know what she's up to. Yeah. And she doesn't want him to come in and she's like, get out, stay out. And he forces, and he forces himself on top of her and basically subdues her and she looks quite traumatised and and I don't know if it was intended as that in the you know in the drama but it's it's definitely this sort of patriarchal thing of just they always want to know what she's up to and if she's doing something in private that she doesn't want anyone else to know about she's just having her own time they will force their way in and just really find out what it is she's up to and, and they want to, to stop doing it because that's enough of doing this thing you're doing and like I'll take the scissors now and all that kind of stuff so it yeah it's a lot of that isn't there yeah there's a lot of um like mistrust she's not trusted she's not and she's not really understood either you know she's either like oh good good Alison good girl or it's like oh what are you doing that it doesn't make sense why are you doing that we you, you, mm. obsessed you can't be obsessed like, what's the matter with you you know and it's kind <laughs> of like she can't explore any of these inner longings that she has she has to it has to be on the table for them all to sort of dissect you know and they, they're policing it don't be too creative you're a woman you can't be too creative stop exactly exactly stop making paper things just comb your hair and look pretty yes. look nice yes um and i think um that's particularly well demonstrated with a scene where i think gwyn and roger are in the house and they're sort of um, examining the mousetrap or cage that they found and they're talking about oh you look these are owl pellets and da, 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 da. and then the nancy comes in and she basically the, the, again coming back to those camera shots you know nancy is stood in the doorway and then you have the mousetrap so it looks as though she's inside of the mousetrap so there's that very much like she's within this domestic sphere she never leaves the house you know mm. she's always you know doing these sort of mundane tasks cooking you know, worrying about money, cleaning, always wearing her sort of cleaning clothes and stuff. And um, I've got one of my heads, she says. I need some <laughs> yes. paracetamol. I've got one of my heads. Uh, and I, I instantly thought of the return to Oz, you know, the queen with many heads. Because her moods maybe are very, she's up and down, you know, she's, um, she's crawling the walls. And I just remember the hall of heads for all these different personalities that she has, you know. So we have Nancy who prowls the corridors like a demon but on the other hand we have margaret who's like a ghost because we never see her she's one of these a character who exists entirely off screen yeah who is like margaret i i only realized i was like oh is nancy the stepmom like who where's this stepmom and they're talking about her in the forest you know yeah oh it's been five weeks she's your mother you know it's just kind of like where is margaret i want to know what's happened to margaret <laughs> she's in the house but they they deliberately withheld withhold actually showing her which is quite effective so she's she's this present who's talked about and i don't know if it's because she's unwell or if they you know she's confined to her bed or they just they just choose to always show different the, you know the rooms that she's not even but even at night when <laughs> when clive is is la he's one of those men who who languidly conducts music in his chair <laughs> yeah so he's smoking but he's puffing on his cigar well the teenagers sort of sit there looking all surly <laughs> 
That was such a funny scene. Yeah. <laughs> Margaret's not there, so I think she might be confined to her bed or something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, I initially kind of thought that about Alison, actually. I thought, you know, she never seemed, in, particularly in the first episode, she doesn't leave her room, basically, um, as far as I can remember, until at least the second episode. I wasn't sure if she was intended to be ill, because one of the du- bits of dialogue early on is is Gwyn says to her do you want a bowl are you going to throw up yes which is yeah. another one of these sort of strange non sequitur things like she's calling for him he's like what do you want a bowl you yeah. throw up? it's like yeah. why are you saying this i find it quite funny as well she seems to be on like whether she was just really trying to embody that role of a child by being on her knees particularly in her room she's kind of like roger's on the bed looking at the plates and she's kind of the shot is that she's like underneath so she looks very small and kind of looking up at Roger, which creates this sort of interesting dynamic that she's like a little girl and she's not well and, you know, she needs protecting and all this sort of thing. I do think that that is a signifier of like a teenager is is being on the knees because that's one of the things that when I was talking about the in the Doctor Who episode that we did, Maureen O'Brien, who plays Vicky, who was mid-twenties but playing a teenager, she uh, there's a shot of her talking to the Doctor and she's sort of on her knees in the same way and kind of in that sort of childlike way so i think yeah yeah a quick uh nerdy note on music one of the bits they play is an excerpt from the carol symphony by victor healy hutchinson and that music is very famous uh, amongst fans of archive tv as being the theme music for the box of delights what's that it was that's 1984 so that is a john macefield adaptation and it, it's one of those things it's set around christmas time and it's something that a lot of people, as a, a Christmas tradition, they watch Box of Delights because it's, it's remembered as being very magical and very atmospheric. And it's, it's part of this kind of magical realist, not quite folk horror by that stage, but it still has that sort of unsettling, menacing feel to it as well. Mm. Uh, I didn't realise it was from a classical piece. I had initially thought that that had been composed especially for the Box of Delights. So it was quite mind-blowing that it also appeared in something five years earlier and it's like oh is this some kind of like extended universe that they're trying to create but i think clearly somebody somewhere is was fond of the the uh, carol symphony what about hugh halfbacon or hugh the flitch is another name they give him he seems to have a I few different like that, names yeah quite an interesting character i particularly like in the like in the third episode where he kind of goes a little bit mad runs off into the woods yes he has a moment doesn't he and he's like i'm a hawk in the sun's tears <laughs> their name is on the books of the law but i own the ground the mountain the valley i own the song of the cuckoo the, the brambles the berries the dark cave is mine. You won't see, will you? Get out of my way, you daft devil. And get that trapdoor cover made up. I am a stag of seven pines. Hell! I'm a fire upon a hill. I'm a hawk in the sun's tears. I am a wolf in every mind. He is that kind of savant character, isn't he? That like, is he the village <laughs> idiot or is he on a, like a yeah. plane higher than everyone else? Is he some kind of mystic? Yeah. Because he, he, yes, he is one of those characters who, like, no one takes him really seriously and everyone's always just sort of, particularly Roger, Roger treats him really badly. He just doesn't take him seriously at all. He's just like, he's the simpleton who spends all his day raking the gravel. But actually, you know, if you listen to him, he's he's making these very cryptic pronouncements. Mm. But Roger in particular is intensely irritated by him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's in the first episode, he meets Roger. Roger's like the first person he talks to that we see him talking to and in that moment I thought it was quite it was a little bit science fiction because he said he says something like going for a swim and Roger's like yes I've got my swimming shorts on that's what I'm doing and he's like yep in your shorts going for a swim and he sort of repeats (laughs) himself as if he's like you know, uh, in a wax museum or uh, like a, an android oh, right. or something. Yes. He's, a little bit, uh-huh. he's not registering that it's like human connection. He's just like 
playing like a loop. Yeah, loop. Yeah. Who who wouldn't want to be called Hugh Half Bacon? I mean, <laughs> you could you could do so many things with that as a character. Yeah, Roger Roger as well. He is a he doesn't seem like a teenager. He seems more like a bank manager. He's a, he's a, he's one of those posh 1960s public school cads. Mm. He seems like he should be ruthlessly exploiting a pop band. <laughs> like he 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 does seem like particularly in the 60s the bands always had really posh managers. Yeah. And he he does seem like, you know, he's he's got them on like a 1% deal or that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> he just seems like that type. You're not going to nick it, are you? No. Do you have pocket money every week? Yes. Bit quaint, isn't it? Is it? Well, if that's how you're fixed, I suppose it's okay to take some early. You're not pinching. You're just anticipating. Not even that. I'm giving a poor thing but my own. Yeah, he's another interesting character, I think, because particularly in the second episode, I feel like he really comes into his his best sort of role in the woods there, Alison and Gwyn, when they're reading from the book. And he it seems as though he's on acid or something. He's wearing the sunglasses and his swimming shorts and he just he's like very yes. cool and collected, but he's he's saying something quite cryptic to them both and it's just it's really weird. Uh yeah, it's a really strange scene. Because um, he's normally so he's normally so logical. He's normally very kind of, oh well, that's just silly nonsense. Stone of Granu, there's a hole in it. Ah, which means we're right in the very place where all this flower power is supposed to have happened, as Professor Half Bacon claims. <laughs> I think it does particularly come alive when the three of them are interacting. I think they do have a good chemistry and a good kind of... Yeah. And it's obviously about the interaction between the three of them sort of going back through history, sort of representing these three characters, but they do have a good chemistry and the, sort of their interpersonal politicking. And he, yeah, he often is lurking in the background with his football and his, yeah. his, alarming, his alarmingly short shorts and he's... Oh my- <laughs> He appropriates Alison's sunglasses as well, so he's got this really odd look, and he's like his his green t-shirt and his his incredible shorts. Yeah, they they really are uh, quite quite incredible. But he's another one doing t- uh, teenager acting because he's clearly in his mid twenties, but he he like hangs upside down from the branch of the tree, and or and he, you know, he larks about in a teenagery sort of way, and it does it does have that sort of slightly super real or you know hyper real feel. Yeah, I, I kind of had a look because I I realised that she's in that scene um, in, the sec- in the second episode where they're in the woods and uh, Alison's reading the Mabignon, I think that's how you pronounce it, ah. um, which is, uh, it's like a, an ancient kind of Celtic mythology book. She, she was reading it basically and that's, that's when all the pages kind of go everywhere and Gwyn kicks it out of her hand, you know. And- which is frightfully bad manners. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, like, this, this seems quite quite harsh you know quite strong reaction you know that's another thing Alison never really rebels you know when they tell her what to do she kind of she pleads a little bit but then she gives in but as soon as she starts giving it back they're like they're furious you know they can't believe she's she's got the gumption to yeah because she really it. goes for him when she when he kicks the book out of her hand she really goes for him and he's terrified oh yeah so it's like well what do you expect I know <laughs> it's like, I mean we yeah. don't behave like this <laughs> I know. In the actual story, this this Mabignon, that apparently there are three characters. So Alison, I believe, is Bl- Bloduwed. Ah. She is a woman created from flowers by the king of Gwynedd. And there's a, a magical trickster called Gwydion. So, uh, you know, I think these are the three or two, two or three characters that start to, to come out in the actual story. So I thought it was quite interesting. I couldn't help have a look you know I, I sort of wanted okay that's a clue I'm, I'm gonna take that you know <laughs> keep going <Yes. laughs> now I think this is a this is quite a pure adaptation because um it's actually written by Alan Garner himself I don't know if he wrote any other screenplays but this one is actually his his own adaptation oh I didn't know that I think he's still alive isn't he he's quite he's quite old but I think he's still around at the time of wow. the time of recording yeah I, I didn't realize that he was actually so creating the story for specifically for the screen that that makes it even more interesting how an author translates you know their writing sort of capabilities into screen and particularly something like this something so symbolic a, another writer a different writer would 
definitely impose their own feelings and their own spin on it and their own slant on it. Something that has is more plot heavy, I think, might be a, a purer adaptation, but something that is so about symbolism and interpersonal relationships and mythology w- would have a big would be coloured by other writers. So I think it's it works quite well that it is Alan Garner adapting it directly. I wonder if he had anything to do with the all of the objects as well in the show and you know the dinner service. Yeah, I wonder. Like you say, like in The Shining, you know that kind of colonialism sort of narrative that's going on in the background. Yeah, could well be. How much of it's coming through the director and how much of it's Alan Garner's work? So the director is Peter Plummer and I'd expected him to go on to do other things. But he doesn't actually have a huge credit list. So he's, his final credit is for uh, Tickle on the Tum. Tickle on the Tum. What's, what's, is that another TV series? So that's for, that's for very young children. Okay. So it's a very light. So it's 1987. So it's not one I ever actually watched because I was too old for it. But as far as I remember, it was quite a, um, quite a, a light show. I was going to say, would that also be in the folk horror genre, Tickle on the Tom? <laughs> I don't believe it would have been, no. He did a few episodes of Crown Court. At Crown Court. But it's one of those things like it's so carefully directed and so beautiful visually that you would have expected him to have gone on to have been a uh, feature film director after this. But it seems like he was jobbing in television for a while. And I think uh, from what I read about it, the filming had quite a profound effect on the actors as well. They found it quite difficult to shake off afterwards that it's not just you know, the, the way it's filmed and edited, that it's it's created this illusion on the screen for us, that apparently it was quite a strange and magical experience filming it as well. Yeah. Not necessarily for anything odd that happened, but I think just the way they inhabited it. And presumably as well, that it, because it's television, they wouldn't have had very long to film it, and it's eight episodes, that's four, nearly four hours of TV. So it would have probably have been quite an intensive filming experience. Mm. So they would, have, they would have inhabited this this space and these characters and this story quite intensively for however many weeks it took to film. Yeah, well, I guess as well, like, they're all sort of working quite closely together. There's a lot of kind of scenes where they're sort of huddled or, like, you know, the struggle in the treehouse and you know, these sort of strange emotional situations that they then have to ha- have a script to in how they react to them. Like you say, some of the, the, the tension between the characters and all that stuff must must be something that goes on underneath the making of, of a show. Yes, it's absolutely crackling with sexual tension, isn't it? I know. You don't get, <laughs> you don't get that in Cracker Jack. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, like the end of episode one uh, has... Ali, she has a sexy turn in the middle of the night, which yeah, again what? is very strong yeah. for for whenever this was broadcast at uh, early evening. Ali, you all right? interesting it seems like that is certainly an element in the film that you know i initially thought that with the red and then you've got this kind of scratching on the ceiling and she says something like and sometimes it's there and sometimes it goes away and she's it's like talking about sexuality talking about becoming a a woman and understanding you know her body and stuff like that it feels like there's that kind of dialogue going on in the the narrative certainly yeah and that scene plays like a horror film particularly when she scratches him on the face and it draws blood like the two lines of blood going down his face yeah that that, that oozes blood and the way it's it's so instant you know it's it's very it's interesting it's very light scratch but there's just like instantly like lots of these little droplets of blood on his face and and also there's this real sense of like someone trespassing rogers in her room and you know he's watching her sleep and it's it's really uh yeah it's foreboding and yeah he's a little bit predatory isn't he yes predatory that's the one yeah it plays out more actually as it goes along into the other episodes but there is this kind of 
what you call a love triangle, but I don't know if love really comes into it that much. It is more like a sort of a lust triangle, I think. Lust triangle, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And I think sort of Gwyn is ostensibly the decent moral centre of it, but even he, as we said before, like when he breaks into her private shed and effectively assaults her, and so even he goes over the line and you get Roger lurking and just seething with jealousy and he's got this really unhealthy crush on his stepsister and yeah the whole thing just it's just quite toxic and even to some extent with uh, the stepfather clive i think there's a scene where he he gives her a gift or something he said oh it's some some nonsense i bought you know yes. for you and uh and then in the hallway we see gwyn and he's like seething you know he's like and roger's sitting on the chair in the background and he's really glowering in that scene isn't he where he's yeah she's getting the gift and he's like he's even jealous of his own dad no here come sit here come on come on sit down it's a little nonsense i picked up when i was in town oh clive how sweet oh i, I thought it might amuse the lady <laughs> You are darling. And she's very sort of Cheshire Cat in that moment. You know, she's really playing to him. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You maybe think that that shot, when she scratches him on the face and it is quite light. I mean, you could... When I watched it, I kind of initially thought it wasn't very well filmed and it was was supposed to look harder, but actually, you know, it was just a light scratch and it was a special effect but you could actually imagine it as being the owl talons because she is challenging she is mm. channeling owls at that point that even though sort of like her fingers do quite lightly brush his face mm. Ooh. there's a shot when hugh is he's raking the gravel as he always does it matches it syncs up with the scratching sound in the attic ah uh, yes yes yeah it's that same sound isn't it which i think also repeats again when so we have the scratching in the attic in the first episode and then when roger comes to see Alison, she's tracing the owls from the plates onto paper and cutting them out and stuff but it, it's a similar noise it's that sort of scratching ah. of, of the the pen on the on the paper it's kind of like scratch scratch you know she's like oh, i'll be finished in a minute you know mm. so it's like it's like she's writing this you know the story is is coming out in these marks these scratches from from animals and from the land and it's sort of speaking through you know these various kind of contexts yeah yeah a lot of this stuff you're mentioning i've not picked up on i think it's one of those things that definitely is it rewards repeated viewings because i've watched it all the way through once yeah i think towards the beginning of lockdown i finally sat down and watched the whole thing and so this is watching the, these three episodes the second time I'd seen them. And uh, yes, I was picking up a lot more that I hadn't noticed last time. And I think sort of you could probably watch the whole thing through two or three or four, five times and always see new things and yeah. pick up new information because th- there is a lot that's unsaid because the beginning of each subsequent episode, there's a recap. So there's the sepia footage of the previous episode and the tv voiceover man does the recap of what's happened but not so much for the three episodes that we watched but later on Mm. he's telling us stuff that we didn't find out from the actual episode so it becomes so impenetrable as it goes along and so mysterious that when you get to the recap in the following episode you go oh so that's what was going on (laughs) the information just wasn't really there yeah i wonder if that was a sort of choice the you know someone else working on the series made you know maybe alan was just being too sort of abstract with it all they're like no we're gonna need we're gonna need some kind of explanation at the beginning of each episode because we're we're gonna lose people (laughs) (laughs) i think often with that kind of thing when you get so and i i've kind of written things before that have been a bit esoteric and i think you get you can get so wrapped up in the symbolism that it becomes utterly obvious because you've spent so much time thinking about it yes yeah so you put it down you go well this is blindingly obvious Uh, and then somebody else reads it and they go i'm absolutely baffled (laughs) you go no but that means that and that connects up with that and they go does it yeah (laughs) (laughs) especially if they've you know they've got the book they've all read the book and you know they've got the screenplay there they've got all the pieces it's it's different isn't it when mm. you're on, when you're on one side and you've got everything and you're picking things out to kind of 
create a new thing with it it's kind of like it's a different experience but when someone else new sees it who hasn't read the book who doesn't know the author or anything it's a completely different experience and I feel like you know because prior to my own even though I hadn't seen this series before obviously I, I knew Alan Garner as an author I'm familiar with a lot of like folkloric narratives and symbolisms and stuff so a few pieces kind of worked for me I think but for for some people it might be quite different so yeah really handy sort of snippet at the beginning there. One line which stood out to me as being quite significant is and I I wrote it down but I can't remember who said it probably Gwyn or Roger uh, but the line is not haunted more like still happening or maybe it's uh Hugh said that but I think that is kind of significant line that it, it isn't a haunting in the same dead spirits. It, it is a thing that is still happening and it's looping throughout time in the same way. Very, very similar to Children of the Stones and very similar to a lot of these. Moondial as well is a similar sort of thing that's ostensibly ghosts, but is it kind of looping action? Also reminded me of the film Celine and Julie Go Boating. Did you ever watch that one? No. That is, um, it's a lot lighter and sillier and more fun. That's from 1974, so that's five years later. Okay. Uh, and it's it's a French film about these two women who live in Paris and they find a, a house in the suburbs in which the same events play out every day in a loop. Mm. So it's a similar sort of 16 millimetre film vibe as well. Um, and the house interiors, these sort of big old house. Mm, I wonder if um, that film, uh, The Duke of Burgundy, had anything, had been influenced by, by that film. It sounds quite similar. Oh, it could well be, yeah. Because he's a, that's Peter Strickland, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He's a, a British film director of a certain age, so I'm sure he would be well aware of this. I mean, this 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 is an Obscurios episode, but actually in the grand scheme of things, it's more obscure than Blankety Blank, but it's it's not super super obscure it's quite well known amongst people who know archive tv and hauntology and that kind of thing it's one of the keystone linchpin items there's lot oh yes there's lots of parallel action as well so lots of sort of things occurring at the same time mm. so the the moment in the billiard room when the bit of wood falls off the wall at that same moment ali has a bit of a turn when she's lying in bed and she kind of groans and there's another bit the moment that Gwyn picks up the plates in the attic then Roger reacts like he's been burnt or like so these yeah lots of these little parallel moments happening yeah I yeah I I didn't really sort of tap into that actually but now now you mention it yeah I did wonder I yeah I sort of thought okay some part of the story is changing here this is this is a marker for some something parallel moments it could be a a chocolate box selection couldn't it <laughs> yes an existential chocolate box yeah <laughs> you eat it you eat a strawberry one and somebody else in the ro- the other room starts tasting caramel Can taste it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so there's five episodes left uh and this is the big question and i can kind of i can kind of guess the answer but would you watch the other five episodes yeah definitely yeah i want to know where this is going i want to know what's going to happen to all these people you know and where's and Will Margaret turn up or is Alison Margaret? Like, <laughs> what's what's going on? <laughs> I was going to say, I'll, I'll probably gift you one of those floral shirts at some point. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always up for a floral shirt. <laughs> I would go around dressed like Roger if I could. Not with the short shorts, though. No one needs that. <laughs> no. Please, please, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's that's covered the Owl service, or at least the three episodes that we watched. Uh, so, Gisela, thank you for coming along and talking about that. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? Anywhere that people can find you if they've been interested in what you've said? So, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'm. my website is www.giselapiggott.co.uk and I've got my, my artwork and drawings and performances on there if you'd like to see that. Um, I'm also running some online drawing and mindfulness sessions, which are quite quite fun. They last for about an hour. So if you'd like to, to join those, do, do get in touch. And yeah, I'm on Instagram as well um, under follow the red thread and a few other accounts. But I think that's my, my main account that I use. So yeah, it'd be nice to, to hear from you. Fantastic. And it's yes, it's really worth checking some of Gisela's work out. Some of it out, all of it out. It's all really good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adam. People can follow us on Twitter at retro underscore tube. 
as usual, I've forgotten what the email address is because Heather normally does this bit. Uh, I don't think we have an Instagram. <laughs> we don't have a website either. <laughs> this is always the bit. I'm always a bit all at sea. If Heather's not here, and I'm like, oh, this is the bit she does. We go to all the regular podcast providers, so anywhere that people get their podcast from, they can pick us up there. Anyway, yeah, thanks for thanks for listening, and um, I'll be back soon with another Retrotube Obscurios episode and we will also return sometime hopefully in the not too distant future with the regular show as well but in the meantime everyone stay safe have a great time and speak to you soon I'm really bad at ending (laughs) these it's a wrap This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.